You're listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We continue only with your help. Visit mortificationofspin.org to make a donation or call 1-800-488-1888. That's 800-488-1888. You are listening to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name is Todd Pruitt. I am half of your hosting team. I'm the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I am joined, as always, by the Reverend Dr. Carl Truman, who teaches church history at Westminster Theological Seminary here in Philadelphia, and he is also the pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Um, I pastor. Carl does everything. He writes books, he teaches, he pastors, he shaves, all of those great things, right, Carl? I do my best, Todd, yeah. uh, and in my spare time, I try to be a husband and a father as well. You so are, I, you are. How is the transition going to the, the PCA? Couldn't be better, couldn't be better. I'm a part of the club. Well, part of one club anyway. I so, am a part of one club, yeah. yeah definitely not, moving in the right direction. Right, I'm not OPC. Carl is Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That makes the fact that he actually has a sense of humor somewhat odd. Ouch. But, uh, but, but I, I want him to know that he's he's welcome in the PCA at, uh, at, at any time. We'd be welcome to forgive him. Like Groucho Marx, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. Actually, Todd, <laughs> That's and, probably uh, wise. All I can say to you in the PCA is you, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Good. Yes, uh, well, uh, today we're having one of the, the podcasts where we deal with uh, a more serious matter, perhaps, than sometimes we address. Uh Anybody involved in Christian ministry, anybody involved in the church is probably going to come across at some point somebody suffering from terminal illness. It is something that respects no class, ethnic, age, or gender barrier. Death, if you like, is a perennial of, of human life. And some of the most challenging pastoral questions, of course, arise around the matter of death, end-of-death care, terminal illness. And recently, uh, Reformation Heritage uh, Books in Grand Rapids have published a fascinating book with the title Compassionate Jesus, Rethinking the Christian's Approach to Modern Medicine. It's written by Christopher W. Bogosh. Christopher preaches and teaches regularly at the New Hope Baptist Church in St. Mary's, Georgia, where he's a member. Interesting enough, he's also a registered nurse at the Community Hospice of Northeast Florida, where he serves as clinical hospice liaison for the Baptist Medical Center and the surrounding community. And in this book, Christopher goes where no other book of which I'm aware goes. He addresses the issue of end-of-life care and raises the very thorny question or questions that surround the matter of how far should a Christian go in order to preserve their life? And how should the church respond to issues surrounding uh, terminal illness and uh, end-of-life palliative care? Christopher, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Perhaps we could kick off by you telling us, uh, why do you write this book? It, it's fascinating. I think it makes an important contribution. But what, what was it gave you the idea of writing this book in the first place? Uh, well, I would have to say my engagement with the medical community and uh, 
you know, just the newness of modern medicine has certainly raised a lot of uh, ethical issues. But more than that, even the underpinnings of modern medicine is really rooted in a, uh, a worldview that is not uh, compatible with a biblical worldview. It's a worldview that's uh, based on uh, anthropocentrism, man is at the center, uh, naturalism, uh, a worldview that espouses agnosticism, that we really don't know what's going to happen to us after we die, and of course, as it's well known, a worldview that is uh, highly steeped in evolutionary theory. And uh, and this worldview, you know, as I was engaged and involved with the medical community, I, I see how this worldview really plays out uh, in medical treatment and uh, in informing people to make decisions for medical care, particularly Christians. And you know, our worldview is is certainly uh, we we you know we agree that there's a uh, we believe that there's a natural universe, of course, but there's also a supernatural universe. Uh, with uh, immaterial entities, such as angels, souls, and uh, and even God Himself, who's distinct from this universe. Um, but there's also within the Christian worldview a, a theistic approach, where God is at the center, not man, and uh, He is sovereign over all, and He rules over all. Um, and of course, uh, we we do know what's going to happen. The Scriptures teach us an absolute um, uh, teaching on what's going to happen after we die. You know, there's a heaven, there's a hell, and these are realities that uh, all mankind uh, will will need to contend with, uh, after death in particular. And of course, rather than evolution, the story of the human race is rooted in redemption, and in a, a redemptive plan that has been planned before time began, uh, that is rooted in bringing all things underneath Christ. And that you know, redemptive plan and story unfolds under the epochs of creation, uh, creation, fall, salvation, and restoration. And so, uh, in my engagement with the medical community, really seeing these two worldviews conflict with one another, and seeing the, unfortunately, the modern medical worldview, which is which is what I call it, which is distinct from medical science, really winning out in many Christians' lives. Yeah, and not necessarily because the the Christians in defiance, but because uh, there's a lack of teaching in this area, unfortunately. Yeah, on page 17, I noticed you you come up with an interesting statistic. You say in March 2009, a study in the Journal of the American American Medical Association reported that those who regularly prayed were more than three times more likely to receive intensive, life-prolonging care than those who relied least on religion. The article also said that religious people were less likely to have advanced medical directives such as living wills and do not resuscitate order, and were more likely to pursue aggressive treatment to prolong life at all costs. Now, obviously, that's you know, people who pray is not necessarily evangelical Christians. But uh, why do you think it is that, that people who, if you like, are, are more likely to be religious seem more desperate to, to stay alive in these particular context or refuse to face up to the reality of of impending death? Well, I think there's certainly several components involved. Of course, um, there's a sanctity of human life um, where, you know, the Sixth Commandment, we are to do all in our power to certainly preserve our lives and to be good stewards of our bodies. Um, so that's certainly a component. Um, but unfortunately, I think, you know, as you peel away the layers, <laughs> in my experience, what I've found is that Many Christians are not claiming the victory of Christ over death, and um, 
and really the what the apostle Paul had said that for for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. I, I think there's certainly several components involved, and sanctity of life is there, but there's also a, a fear of death, and um, and I think if you per- peel away even more layers, that there are people who are in the in the church in churches living for the here and now, and and I think uh, could be self-deceived, you know, and, and thinking that they're a believer uh, when the reality is that. Perhaps they need to examine uh, their faith a little more closely, and if they're clinging to Christ as tightly as, um, uh, well, if Christ is clinging to them as tightly as uh, as they really confess that he is clinging to them. Um, so I, I think there's certainly several components. Um, you know, it's hard to really put put a finger on any one, one issue um, in order to... Uh, to make a determinative guess, <laughs> I guess you right. could say. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess as far as uh, as that that article goes, I mean, it certainly it's not specific to the Christian community, but you know, in my experience and working with people who are professing believers, uh, there is certainly relevance of that article to my experience mm-hmm. and in my place. And of course, my experience is not normative across. The United States of America, or even uh, so, or even in in the limited area in Florida where I live. So, does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, very much. So. I think, I think Todd, so. Todd's got a question well, here. I, I would imagine, Christopher, that uh, that you get some pushback uh, from people touching on what what you just mentioned. Uh, perhaps a misunderstanding that uh, that your thesis here somehow is 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 held in tension against. A, a pro-life stance, which which I don't believe it is. Um, but at what point? How would you describe to a person? Here's here's sort of the criteria we would look at when it's time to begin to consider perhaps stopping treatment, um, accepting uh, the inevitability of death at this point. What kind of criteria would you suggest that we hold forth to help make those decisions? I think the biggest criteria would certainly be. Um, am I making my life an idol? And uh, we worship the God of life, and um, it, it, and I think that at times Christians can have such a focus on a pro-life agenda that they forget that um, that there's a God who is the creator of all life, and it is He we worship and not our life. And um, if He's calling us to to die and to go to him, then uh, we need to be willing to submit to that, to his will in that area. Uh, as far as from a practical standpoint, you know, um, let me just try to give you a, a, a scenario. I, you know, work with a lot of people who have cancer and people who sometimes go to ridiculous ends in pursuing cancer treatment. And, uh, and at times the treatment that these people are, are receiving, uh, hoping to live on in the here and now, is actually cr- destroying his or her body, so they're not being good stewards to their body, and creating havoc in, um, in their life and the life of their family, and um, in really pursuing the treatment to such an extent that it's destroying them. Um, so certainly 
somebody could maybe live two more months uh, if they get that next chemotherapy treatment, but it could be two months of misery. And uh, in misery, that could lead others to suffer as well. So, I mean, that's certainly a criteria you look at as, as well when, when trying to uh, determine uh, whether or not it, someone should stop treatment. Um, so, so certainly there's the, the whole fact of idolatry and worshiping life and really questioning one's motives behind pursuing the treatment. And then uh, from a practical standpoint, you know, really studying whether one is being a good steward of, of his or her body. What about uh, persistent vegetative state situations, uh, Christopher? What happens if there's a member of your congregation and they have a, a child or a relative who's been involved in an accident and they're now uh, in a coma? And the question of uh, removing life support becomes a, a big issue. What kind of advice would you suggest for that? Well, I think um, if you have somebody who's uh, in a persistent vegetative state and somebody is on a ventilator to breathe, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's ever wrong to remove life support, life support like a ventilator or uh, any type of aggressive technology that um, that is keeping somebody's, you know, possibly keeping their lungs breathing and their their heart going and and stuff like that. Um, if but if that life support is removed and a person breathes on his or her own, like um, Terry Schiavo is a good example, who had no, who was in a persistent vegetative state uh, for many years and was breathing on her own, then we have an ethical obligation to uh, to preserve that person's life. Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, if the person has a cardiac arrest, that we should necessarily, you know, uh, perform CPR and defibrillation and all that stuff as far as aggressive resuscitation techniques. Um, but if the person like that is breathing on his or her own and, you know, that person needs a feeding tube, then certainly uh, that would be something that we would want to do as Christians mm. because we have, right. uh, an, you know, an ethical obligation from Matthew 25 to feed those mm -hmm. who, um, uh, who need to be fed. That's a good point. Um, but as far as uh, aggressive treatment, you know, when I, when I counsel people and when they're struggling with the questions of whether or not to remove life support, I, I remind them sometimes that, you know, the technology that we have today, the ventilators, mechanical ventilation, defibrillation, a lot of the medications, all this aggressive stuff, I mean, it was not even around 70 years ago. So people uh, prior to that time, when they had a cardiac arrest uh, and their heart stopped beating, they died, yeah. you know. And, uh, and so, you know, this technology that we have today is certainly a blessing in many ways. You know, we go, people, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a surgery, but you might have gone into a surgery and, you know, if you weren't intubated and, and kept alive underneath the uh, anesthesia, then, you know, you wouldn't be with us today. And, yeah. um, so certainly it's a blessing in that respect. And, you know, sometimes there are conditions where somebody, uh, is on a ventilator for a while and, uh, the person bounces back. Um, it, you know, persistent vegetative state is a little bit different situation where you have somebody who's showing no, uh, signs of, uh, of cognitive activity. But, um, but again, you know, you get into this whole issue of, um, you know, we really do not know what's going on inside somebody and we don't know what's going on with somebody who, somebody who's in a coma. 
you know, mm. or in a persistent vegetative state because we're not inside their brain or in their body or uh, able to, uh, to analyze the soul. You know, mm. we can only be observers. Uh, people don't know my mental states unless I disclose those mental states to that person, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think it's ever wrong to re- withdraw life support. Um, you know, of course, there's much wisdom in that, biblical and medical wisdom, and we certainly need to be uh, careful. Uh, and, you know, a lot of comes in prognosis and all that other stuff, and, you know, what's, what the medical instrumentation is saying. Um, so, but if somebody continues to live off of, like, a ventilator or, um, or something like that, then we certainly have an obligation to care for that person, but not necessarily to do aggressive treatment mm. to prolong their life if, uh, if, you know, the heart stops beating or something in the future. One of the uh, things that, that struck me about your book is on page 41. You make a great distinction there, and I wonder if you'd perhaps uh, just unpack it a little for our listeners. You say, Biblical compassion is characterized by a great affection or love for people in need, but it is not to be confused with sentimentalism. I wonder if you'd like to, to comment on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, sentimentalism, of course, is... Um, is uh, you know, tied closely to emotionalism and uh, becoming emotionally involved uh, when, um, uh, in such a way that we're not thinking rationally. Uh, so uh, when we're exercising biblical compassion, we want to be sure we're always exercising biblical compassion in line with what the teaching of Scripture is. Um, and and not uh, going into this mushy sentimentalism, um, trying to uh, keep somebody alive because uh, they make me feel good. You know, that's a sentimental response. Um, or because I think that, um, that, that keeping them alive is going to appease something within me that is, um, is going to keep me going, so to speak. Um, so I guess from a, from a sentimental standpoint, what, what I mean by sentimentalism is just a, an approach to showing compassion that is not rooted in really thinking rationally or logically about a situation, um, where I'm trying to think of an example to give you, um, uh, you know, uh, Joe Schmoe's on a, on a ventilator and, um, and, He's, you know, basically has no brain function according to what the testing is saying, and uh, and the the wife is in the room, you know, hoping that he's going to live on when all the the medical data is saying that he may not live on, but yet keeping the person uh, in a state of um, of vent- being on a ventilator and really causing that person to suffer more. Um, so it's a it's a it's a sentimental decision in the sense that it's not rooted in really taking into consideration what is happening from a, from a logical or rational perspective of the in, in embracing the reality of the situation. Um, and of course, sentimentalism, the our feelings that are based upon our own sentiments and our own feelings, and not really based on the sentiments of, or feelings that we should have. As, uh, as believers in Christ. I don't know if that answers the question. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very helpful answer. Now, in sort of practical terms, Todd and I preach to the same congregations week in, week out. 
What kind of things should we as pastors in a weekly preaching routine be doing in order to, I suppose, encourage our people to realize they're going to die without being unnecessarily morbid or depressing, uh, and also help them to, to think in biblical categories rather than the sentimental categories that you've just outlined to us. What's, you're, you're an elder, you're a, a Christian, you're a medical professional. What would you be looking for in your ideal preacher or pastor on these kind of issues? Um, I think that it's important to communicate a clear biblical worldview. I think, first of all, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this is a worldview, con- there's a conflict of worldviews going on between modern medicine and Christianity, you know, so preaching certainly on the, uh, the doctrine of creation, but the doctrine of creation and also emphasizing um, that God has created immaterial entities, such as souls, angels, there are immaterial things, people, <laughs> beings that exist, I guess you could say, uh, because Today, you know, I mentioned the definition of brain death, and that definition is based upon monism, and it's based upon an ontological naturalism, which says that we're only composed of biochemical substances and that our mental states are nothing more than what are called epiphenomena. So, you know, as a Christian is in the intensive care unit and the doctor's giving a diagnosis of brain death, you know, preaching from the pulpit that, you know, there is an immaterial part of us. And regardless of what instrumentation says, you know, whether we have electric waves in our brain or whatever testing that's done, there is no testing that we can create in this realm in order to determine whether or not somebody, um, we can detect the soul in a person. So certainly this the creation creation aspect. Um, you know, theism and theism in, in, a, in a respect that the universe revolves around God. You know, it's not about me, it's not about my life, and it's not about me living on here and now uh, for as long as I want to. It's about uh, serving our sovereign creator and doing his will. You know, in this world, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and certainly praying, uh, and I'm uh, not praying, preaching, uh, you know, about our omnipotent and omnipresent creator, our triune God who's in control and he's sovereign uh, over all things. And of course, um, you know, scriptures and the importance of the infallibility of scripture and how scripture is a guide, not just a coping guide for us to get through a medical experience, but it's actually a guide to build our worldview upon. And it's a sufficient guide. The scriptures are sufficient, and they they are what we base our worldview upon as Christians. And of course, um, redemption, and that God has a redemptive plan, as it says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that he's even determined before anything's begun to you know, to choose people, certain people in Christ, and to bring all things underneath Christ. And as that unfolds in redemptive history, we have creation, fall, salvation, and then restoration. And I think there's a, you know, we live in this time between salvation, that Jesus has come into the world, uh, he's been incarnate, he's died, he's rose from the dead, and he's ascended. But we as Christians need to look forward and hope to the day of, and I mentioned in the book, the day of vengeance of our Lord, the second coming of Christ. And we look forward to a bodily resurrection that's to come. And I think that's certainly something I see neglected in churches today. Um, 
the emphasis on here and now, we're never going to be healed. <laughs> Even the people yeah. Jesus healed got sick and they died one day. Um, and we look forward to a bodily resurrection, and we look forward to physical healing when the bodily resurrection occurs and our bodies are reunited to our souls. I think that's a, that's a great point, Christopher, and, a, and an excellent point to to bring our program to an end on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually asked by a member of the congregation here. They've got a, an elderly relative who wasn't very well, very, very elderly relative, and they they said to me, you know, relatives are asking me to pray for this person to get better, but I'm just not sure that there's much point at this point. Would it not be better that I prayed for her to pass peacefully uh, into eternity? And I said to, to the young lady, I said, that may well be the appropriate response in this situation, that this person has lived a life full of years. Death ultimately is unnatural. It's an intrusion into the created realm as a result of sin. But there comes a point at which it is time for somebody to pass into the presence of the Lord. So I want to thank you for joining us today, Christopher. It was a very, very interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, and I want to recommend this book to our listeners. It is... Compassionate Jesus, Rethinking the Christian's Approach to Modern Medicine by Christopher W. Bogosh. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. And if you register at mortificationofspin.org, you stand uh, to win a free copy of Compassionate Jesus. Uh, Visit mortificationofspin.org to spin the wheel. I'm not quite sure how... Uh, reformed and Christian that is, but to spin the wheel for a free copy of Chris's new book. Uh, Everyone, pastors, elders, deacons, lay people should read this book, uh, but one in ten can get a free copy at mortificationofspin.org. So thank you very much for joining us, uh, Christopher, and thanks to the audience out there for listening in. We hope you found this uh, a helpful program. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And we look forward to being with you all next time. Thanks very much. This has been Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals also publishes Reformation21.org, ChristWordCollective.org, and PlaceForTruth.org. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue with your support. Make a donation at mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. That's mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. Thanks for listening.